For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast. In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. Hmm. I'm Tim. And I'm Marshall. Good to have you. This is like, I feel like we're, this is like public radio. Hello and welcome. You know, I, I, to the In and Through podcast. I know that intros are always supposed to be the same. Right. But after a while, you're like, yeah, they're all the same. <laughs> It's true. It's true. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. It's hectic, crazy time. A little but bit. But I'm I'm surviving it. Good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. You got a lot coming up. I do. In the next little. It's okay. Bit. It's okay. By the time this drops, people will be like, "Oh, he's in it." <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, uh, today we're going to talk about some more important people and events. Yep. In the process of the Reformation in the kind of the latter half of the 16th century. But first, I have some fun events to Let's share with you all. Let's okay, 1547 to 1575, Ivan the Terrible is ruling as the first, technically the first czar of all of Russia. Do you think his mom named him that? <laughs> you think he just grew into it? Well... Ivan, uh, I think he grew into it because <laughs> Ivan, uh, although he was very successful in expanding the kingdom, he also was prone to slaughter many of his own people that he thought weren't loyal to him. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's kind of, that kind of is like, continues even, well, to some degree even today, to be a bit of like a Russian M.O. I mean, yeah. the, 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 many of the Tsars did it. The communists definitely did it. They loved to right. kill their own people. And, uh, you know, they're not too kind to those who are outspoken amongst their own people even today. You know, two thoughts on that. One, when you read about these legitimately evil people, mm-hmm. and you think they had the same start we did. A mm-hmm. mom exhausted from labor tearing up holding the baby going isn't he cute and <laughs> bouncing him on their knees <laughs> i don't know whether I, I don't know how i feel about that thought i've had that thought often mm. and i just don't know how i feel about it mm. right in some ways it sort of humanizes them and from a christian perspective causes me to realize the depravity of sin and to pray for that person differently. Mm. The same time, it causes me to look differently at every baby bouncing on mom's knee. <laughs> it's like, who are you going to become? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 1556, the Shanxi earthquake, the deadliest earthquake in world history occurs in China. Uh, they figure it directly killed about 100,000 people. Wow. Like, when it happened, it killed 100,000 people. But then it displaced nearly a million people and so when you factor in like famine and sickness as a result of the fallout, hundreds of thousands dead. That's incredible. From a single earthquake, yeah. Wow. Yeah. A lot of devastation. Uh, 1565 was the Great Siege of Malta. So this is a bit of a callback. When we talked during the Crusades about those uh, orders of knights, the one that stuck around the longest were the Knights Hospitaller. 
and they were kind of set up on the island of Malta, and a few hundred of them, along with some kind of local volunteers, held off the Ottoman Empire for months. Like, massive army, massive cannons, the same okay. kind of thing. And uh, it's if, if anyone listening is a fan of military history, it was something that I was not very familiar with until recently, but uh, just an amazing story. Amazing story. Uh, you wouldn't think, you wouldn't think from the outset that military history and church history would be so closely united. Yeah. I, I promise you that there's someone listening who, when they thought they were hopping on the church podcast, or church history podcast, they, they thought it was all going to be about preachers. Yeah, no. And, and to find out that it's so militaristic mm. is probably a surprise. Yeah, for some, for, for sure. For at least some. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the last thing I've got is 1569. Uh, Gerardus Mercator produced his world map, which um, for the time was just a massive leap in cartography. Oh, yeah. In fact, if you look at the map that he, that he did in 1569, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. North America and South America, the shapes are maybe a little off. But considering that they'd only just discovered the Americas like 70 years before that mm -hmm. and had only circumnavigated the globe like a generation before that, to to have that kind of thing mapped out with that degree of accuracy is astounding. And you got to consider what they're working with. Yeah. Right? Like they're floating down the shore in a boat mm -hmm. going, oh, it looks like it comes out a little bit here and then it dips <laughs> in a bit there and comes out... What? Yeah. It's witchcraft that they got anything close. It's crazy. It's 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 unbelievable. And and I don't you know, and you'd have to kind of deal probably with other people's accounts as well. Like I don't think yeah. Gerardus himself right. sailed every single coastline on the face of the earth, I know. right? So anyways, just I thought that was really that was really neat. Yeah, I, I think ancient cartography is just incredible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a mind boggling thing to me. Yeah, yeah. So today, the, the first main character that we're going to talk about, and he's probably going to own a good chunk of our, our time this, um, in this episode, is a guy by the name of John Knox. Now, the name Knox, probably familiar to many. Mm -hmm. um, at least around here, it seems like every Presbyterian church is Knox Presbyterian. Well, he's the father of Presbyterianism. Yeah, fair enough. No, I did a quick like Google Maps search, and like within... Within an hour's drive of where we are now, there's at least 20 <laughs> Knox Presbyterian churches. Yeah. That's incredible. Can I point out to those who are listening at home or wherever it is they're listening, mm. but only I can see that you're currently drinking your coffee out of a John Knox mug? I am. Look at that beard, man. It, it just keeps going. <laughs> I have the same mug, but mine's a pen holder. Oh, okay. That way it's always on my desk. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so so, so people might be familiar with his name because they've seen it on a lot of church signs, particularly if you, uh, if you live around here where there's a lot of Scottish Presbyterian immigrants who founded communities in, in our area. Uh, but many people don't know a lot about his story. At least they, they don't know nearly as much as they would about Luther mm -hmm. or maybe even Calvin. Uh, but he's, he's got a fascinating story. I heard I heard a secular historian, a Scottish historian, talking about Knox um, as really, in in a lot of ways, the father of not only modern 
their modern nation, mm. but the the father of modern democracy mm. and the modern democratic world because of his contributions. And he said, if you lived half the life that John Knox lived, you would find nothing but boredom on a roller coaster. <laughs> That's great. I love that. <laughs> That's great. So John Knox was born around 1514. That's what my mug says when it has his birth date and death date, but we actually don't know. So, uh, so let's just be clear about something. It, it's not that we're both such fanboys that we ran out and got no. John Knox mugs. They were giving them away. There's a ministry group called 20 Schemes, Yeah, and 20 Schemes is a church planting group uh, in Scotland, mm-hmm. and... The, the reason is Scotland has become profoundly secular. Yes. Uh, much like Quebec. Yes. We presume it to be a place where the church would just sort of spill over because we have churches everywhere and we're just kind of connected. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not. It's not. There, there are places in the world that we look at as significant mission fields that have more Christian presence in these countries. Certainly. Yeah. And 20 Schemes is working to change that. They show up at all the pastors' conferences. And as Eric pointed out to us, it's kind of like pastors trick-or-treating when you <laughs> just go from booth to booth gathering all the mugs and the pins and everything yeah. like that. Yeah. So that's where we got those mugs from. Yeah. But it doesn't mean they're less cool. No, I love it. I love this mug. But uh, yeah, so he, he was born to a merchant father. His mother died when he was very young. Because he wasn't the oldest son... Um, taking over the family business probably wasn't going to happen. So one of the things that um, he starts kind of directing himself towards is the priesthood because that was kind of the way to advance yourself Mm -hmm. if you weren't the oldest son. So he studies university, is ordained as a priest in 1536. He does notary work for the church and then starts tutoring the sons of local lords. So he's like in it. He's very much in the Catholic system. And we don't entirely know how and when he came to his Protestant convictions. Right. Yeah, there's, there's we, we don't get like a, 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 like a play-by-play story like we do with someone like Luther, for example. Uh, but it was sometime probably in the early 1540s, so when he is probably in his late 20s, early 30s. And one influence likely came through an earlier Scottish reformer named George... Wishart. I don't know if it's Wishart or Wishart. I'm just going to go with Wishart. Sure. sure. Say it with an accent, with a Scottish accent, accent and however it comes George out. George Wishart. George Wishart. Wishart. Okay. Wishart. Um, George had been preaching against the veneration of Mary and a bunch of other, you know, wacky Catholic doctrines for a while. And so he had to flee uh, from Scotland. And when he was on the continent, rubbed shoulders with many of the characters that we've already spoken of, translated some of their works into English, and he comes back to Scotland and is going around preaching for the Reformation, even though it is, like, expressly illegal. And, like, they're, they're looking for this guy, and he's just openly traveling around and preaching. Um, John Knox is taken in by this guy, so much so that he serves as a bodyguard for him. One of the things he was known for, John Knox was known for, is he carried around this large two-handed sword and stood next to George Wishart as he was traveling and preaching. 
I just that's just such an interesting picture. Oh yeah, just him standing next to him with just like mm-hmm. this giant sword. Can you imagine? Like that'd be like yeah, if you're preaching on a Sunday and I'm just gonna like stand off to the side with a giant sword just in case anything gets too rowdy. Um, so uh, yeah, I thought that was fun. Um, but eventually he George is uh, seized. And Knox is, you know, ready to go down fighting essentially, but George encourages him to flee instead. And so then John is on the run. And I mean, this this happens to so many of these guys, right? They have these like lengthy periods where they're just, it seems like it's just kind of part of the process of what it means to become a reformer is at some point people have to be trying to kill you. That's, that's definitely the badge that you've arrived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. If nobody wants you dead, are you even really doing it? <laughs> yeah. Of course. Of course. And and we're gonna see the like that's been a thing up to this point. Mm-hmm. That becomes a circus. Oh yeah. In yeah. England. Oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. But before we get to what's going on in England, because we we will definitely talk about that. He is on the run, and he hears word that some Protestant rebels have killed the the nobleman who had burned Wishart at the stake and seized a castle like a very small group of guys seized an entire castle and so a bunch of reformed people are, are kind of flocking there for safety and he starts preaching there and there's an interesting story about when he's first asked to preach he actually like breaks down crying and runs away because he doesn't want to do it <laughs> Mm-hmm. he's like no i don't want to but anyways he comes around his first sermon was from daniel 7 and where he compares the pope to the antichrist essentially he's pulling no punches <laughs> no and no. he's not the first though no of course not. this whole this whole the pope or more broadly the catholic church but the idea that the pope is the antichrist mm-hmm. is has deep deep roots in the reformation yeah yeah luther mm-hmm. sort of brought it about mm-hmm yeah. Um, and, and others before yeah but but yeah it is it is popularized and for all the different ways that the reformers will disagree this is kind of uh the common enemy this is a common thing yeah right the common the common theme the theme that binds us together mm-hmm. is we all believe the pope is the antichrist so the thing and this is the reasoning for it though right so if the pope is saying if you affirm justification by faith Mm -hmm. or if you affirm the authority of scripture and not church tradition, then you are a heretic and you need to die. Right. To, to see that. And when the Pope popes at that time were actively doing that, that's a fair, that's a fair understanding. Yeah. That man is antichrist. That man is seeking to destroy God's church, right? Right, those things that Christ has called us to, Mm -hmm. he is trying to suppress. Mm -hmm. He has risen to a place of power and authority that is above anyone else in the world. There is no reason, I mean, today, dispensationalists and premillennialists of all natures, historical premillennialists as well, if if anyone rose to that level of power and worked that hard to suppress the church, we we would do the same. Yeah, oh, certainly. Yeah, can you imagine if a political leader today was actively attacking the church in the same way that the Pope was at that time. Like, Who held authority in multiple countries. Yes. Yeah. 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 Premillennialism would be all over calling that an antichrist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, personified. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. So, unfortunately, um, the Scottish crown 
who was not a fan of, of John Knox or his teaching, they get a French fleet to siege the castle. John is captured, and he would spend um, over a year and a half as a slave. And and not just any slave, but a galley slave. And so this is, this is, this is just to kind of help people understand what it would be like to be a galley slave. You are chained to a bench mm-hmm. below decks on a boat, on a wooden boat, not a cruise ship, not a modern day craft, a leaky, damp boat. It's dark down there. You're forced to pull oars all day long without being allowed to stand up or to really move all that much. There were no bathroom breaks, people. Mm-hmm. You had to do what you had to do where you were, and they gave you just enough food to remain effective at pulling an oar. And that is the scenario. That is wh- how he is living for over a year and a half. They did, however, give personal days for mental health. <laughs> <laughs> did you Did you come across? Your <laughs> Sorry, that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Surely everyone knows that wasn't true. Yeah. Uh, did you come across the story of the guards who, knowing who he was, brought him the statue of Mary? Yeah, yeah. Were you headed there? That's a good one. Yeah. Why don't you tell the story? I'm, all right, I'll cut you off then. Uh, so knowing who he was and some others with him bring at threat of his life to an extent, mm. uh, although it's not profitable to actually kill your slaves, mm-hmm. uh, a statue of Mary to say, kiss it, right? Just sort of bullying, wielding the, the authority they have over. A uh, couple of them refuse. They come around to Knox. He takes it and throws it in the sea. <laughs> He says, uh, let her lady now save herself. She's light enough. Let her learn to swim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And at one point, because they, they sail, this boat sails, because the French galley, they sail down to France mm-hmm. and in different areas. They, they end up back near Scotland again. And you, you can actually, at one point, see the steeple that he first preached at uh, from where they are in the boat. And he says, I won't die until I preach there again. Yeah. And so he is released eventually for reasons that aren't entirely clear. Um, a lot of people think it might have been some kind of prisoner release deal organized by the King of England, who at this point is Edward the Sixth. He's Henry the Eighth's son, right? Who wasn't really a king. Like he was, he was kind of there were regents in his place. But then by the time he's a teenager, he's actively supporting the Protestant movement. So it it could be that. And so, so that Scottish historian that I was watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what did he say? He, in his description of this, because he was, his whole point was to say, come to Scotland and receive the history and all of this amazing, uh, rich, deep history that we have, right? So Mm. very pro-Scottish. Sure. He says, although the caterpillar of Knox is Scottish Mm. and the butterfly of Knox is Scottish, the chrysalis in which he is formed is English. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's... That's pretty cool. That's well said. Yeah, yeah. So he doesn't return to Scotland. He spends the first five years in England, and he's licensed as a preacher in the Church of England, which is kind of in this process of reform. Um, But as we mentioned, how reformed was it really? Yeah, so this is what... I I don't want to backtrack what I said last week. Mm Mm-hmm but I do want to put some parameters around it, right? 
Henry VIII is not a reformer. No, no, no. no. I will, I'll stand on that. Sure. He's not a reformer. That was a schism. Mm -hmm. However, the people that he employs to bring about the schism are reformers. Yeah, yeah. And they start making changes and adjustments that are undeniable, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. we do have these pockets of reformation inside of Henry VIII's schism yeah that's that's how i think the picture is best painted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, i am not a phd on henry the eighth and the english reformation uh but it's way it's too much to give him credit and when i see pictures of him alongside luther <laughs> and calvin and calvin <laughs> i it just yeah turns me yeah so so knox is working within the english church um, it's good, but not great for him. The English Reformation has not been as as radical as what has happened on the mm-hmm. continent with Luther, or sorry, with Calvin and Zwingli, and those those characters. And that's really where Knox is at theologically. But he kind of bites his tongue. Sometimes he'll make an issue of things. Sometimes he'll adapt something. They're they're having to use the the Common Book of Prayer. All churches in England have to use this Common Book of Prayer that we mentioned a couple episodes ago, and he'll just like tweak certain minor things with it and just be like yeah we're not going to do that thing yeah right there's there's at one point he has a beef with um kneeling during communion because in the church of england in their in their liturgy the people would kneel when they took communion and he was like nah we're not do- we're not doing that at my church and so it caused a bit of a, bit of a kerfuffle but you know they figured yeah out. the the thing about Knox that i find really fascinating is he's no less bold than any of the other reformers we've already talked about or will talk about. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. there's no there's no wishy washy inside mm-hmm. of Knox. Um, he's as bold as you would hope a Scott would be. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, he's pretty adept at knowing which heels to die on. I get that sense as well. Yeah, and we're gonna see more of that with him. But yeah, mm-hmm. no, I definitely I definitely get that that sense because there there will there'll be more scenarios where he's kind of like. I think this is wrong, but I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to just like condemn everyone who sees this particular issue different than me, particularly when it's amongst the uh, you know other Protestants. Um, he's repeatedly offered bishoprics, so they want to make him a bishop in the Church of England, and he keeps rejecting it, probably because he wasn't 100% in line theologically. It'd be weird for him to be a bishop in the Church of England. Like yeah. for him to be a preacher at a local church is one thing, um, but for him to be a bishop and holding that kind of power, he's not really interested in that. Yeah, because um, because there's a difference between preaching the word of God and enforce and uh, and being able to do those tweaks and things like that versus enforcing mm-hmm. others to teach against your conscience. Yeah, and, and what we're gonna see later in his life is that when he does kind of help set the stage for a new ecclesiology, a new church organization, mm-hmm. there are no bishops. Right. So he's probably like, I don't even agree with the office of bishop as it's interpreted, so I'm not going to be one, right? Um, but things things change pretty rapidly in England because Edward VI, this Protestant son of Henry VIII, dies at a very young age. And his successor would be none other than Mary I of England, who would become known as Bloody Mary. Not named that by her mother. Not named that by, no, no. 
Um, so Mary was the only surviving child from Henry's very first marriage to Catherine of Aragon. That was the, the, the you know, the important Spanish um, princess who was the aunt to the Holy Roman Emperor and the whole thing that he divorced in order to kick off this whole thing. And she was middle-aged at this point. She's 37 years old and she comes to the throne. So she's no spring chicken. She she knows what she's about. She knows what she wants. She has an agenda. Mm-hmm. And she's got a beef that has been brewing for decades now. Yeah, I, I also want to bring people down a little bit from what you just said. What did I say? I think there are a lot of people that hear 37 and think spring chicken. But at the same time... This is the 1500s. Right. Right. <laughs> Life expectancy is not what it is today. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 37 then was more like 57 or 67 now. You got to be careful the holes you dig, Bob. I just mean that I'm she's just saying, not a young woman. I know, but you know what? The One of the major jobs of a senior pastor not and mentor people. the associate pastor <laughs> is to help them understand when to what to not right. say. Fair enough. Okay. Well, sorry to any one I offended. Um, so, (laughs) so, uh, Mary, okay. So Mary does a couple things pretty quickly here. She, she marries a Spanish prince. Yep. Um, again, that sort of political alliance through marriage thing. Yeah. So she does that. Um, and she really immediately wants to have a baby as soon as possible for a couple. Well, one, she's 37, but secondly, she also, if she doesn't have a baby and before she dies, then the crown will move off of her to her younger half-sister, who is a Protestant, named mm-hmm. Elizabeth. And she doesn't want that to happen. So she's desperate to have a baby. Um, yeah, there, she actually, there's, a, there's an interesting thing that happens in her life. Um, she actually has a false pregnancy. She actually, like, her period goes away. She grows a belly. All of the signs of pregnancy occur to the point where they decide they're going to let Elizabeth out of prison because Mary's about to have a baby. And so no, she's no longer a threat to the the succession line. Mm-hmm. Everyone is getting ready for this baby to happen. And the baby never comes because she was never pregnant. She act. It was like a psychosomatic thing. Wow. And it's actually and I looked it up. It's actually a thing that can happen. Candace actually has a friend that this happened to. Um, so devastating for her. Um, but what she's really known for why she gets the the moniker Bloody Mary is for her religious policies. And initially, when she became queen, she said she wasn't going to force anyone to Catholicism. But literally within like a few months, every notable Protestant leader who hadn't went into hiding was imprisoned. Right. Like, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, like including mm-hmm. the highest person in the church. And this is where I said it becomes a circus. Oh, Totally. Because on the continent of Europe, the issue for the Protestants were you knew what you were getting into. Mm -hmm. You signed up for Protestantism because you have a conviction that this is right before God. You know what you're signing up for. You're signing up for martyrdom. Sure. Right? Um, In England, there are a lot of people who see the country go from Catholic to Protestant and they're like, all right, well, whatever saves my neck. 
Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And they're like Protestants. Okay, sure. Yeah. Let's let's work through that. And and as we mentioned with Knox, one of the ways to promote yourself in society is through the church. Yeah. So the same thing that we've had in the Catholic Church, where we have people entering into the church and into the priesthood, not because they feel they've been called by God to lead the body of Christ into right. all righteousness, right. but because they want a good job mm-hmm. and they want some clout, mm-hmm. right? Those people are like, all right, Protestant church is the way to go. And then the king dies and now there's a queen and she's like, no, Catholic church. And everyone like, that was a Protestant is like, oh, um, Catholicism. I renounce <laughs> everything and, and we'll find out. That this isn't just a one-time shift. No. With with every monarch for like the next century. It's just like ping pong. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Back and forth. And you've just got to feel for these people. Just your everyday English person. Right. right? You guys you guys like, I'm a blacksmith, man. <laughs> I'm a blacksmith. Just tell me what I gotta do. Just tell me tell me where to go. Man. Right, yeah, and and seriously. then and then these like, this is a good reason outside of the call of God for people to be like, you know what, I'm gonna find another way other than the church mm. because that right there is not stable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It yeah. is just a constant flip flop for all of society, mm-hmm. and Mary gets the bloody mark because mm-hmm. of all of the stuff that she does. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't the only one. Oh no, no, no! It is it is violent and it went vicious both ways, yeah. on both sides yeah. for a very long time. Yeah, it's it it just has to be a very uneasy time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah, and so she she begins executing. She begins with executing bishops. Actually, she starts at the top. And John Knox never took <laughs> a role as a bishop. <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> uh, Someone he, call that providence. Yeah, he went into hiding while this is going on. But uh, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, some of the guys you might have mentioned in a, in a previous episode are, are burned at the stake. There's actually John Fox, who mm-hmm. was another notable Protestant, wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs. And a lot of it is dedicated to these stories of these martyrs who were primarily burned at the stake um, during Mary's reign. Um, Hundreds, hundreds Mm -hmm. of people. And not all outspoken bishops, men, women, children. They're stories of like ladies with their babies in their arms being burned at the stake. Um, It's pretty rough. It gets pretty rough. Just to camp a little bit on Fox's Book of Martyrs, Mm -hmm. uh, it's still available. It's still being updated. Yeah. So uh, the Voice of the Martyrs is an organization that recognizes Christian martyrdom. And uh, the Book of the Martyrs goes all the way back to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And obviously it can't hit every martyr. Yeah, totally. But tells stories of martyrdom right up into the modern era. Mm-hmm. My recommendation is check out Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, because I, I think being aware of this sort of thing is good for the church, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They are brothers and sisters that we will spend eternity with. Mm-hmm. They are spoken of in Revelation uh, as being those whose blood was spilled for the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go onto their books, you can find a copy of 
Fox's Book of Martyrs. I say buy it from them and support yeah. Voice of the Martyrs. For uh, sure. Because it is, I mean, it's it's not a feel-good read. It's not like bedtime stories for your children. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a valuable read. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, probably the most notable execution that occurs during her reign is Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the guy who wrote the Common Book of Prayer, Mm -hmm. the guy who's been kind of part of this whole process since the beginning. Right. Right. He was that he was that young bishop underqualified, but does the marriage between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. And he's kind of been along for the ride for this whole thing. And initially, Thomas Cranmer actually recants under pr- pressure. I mean, probably under torture. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mary decides, well, even though you recanted, I'm going to execute you anyways. And so there's this whole thing that's set up for when he's going to face his ex- execution. And he has to, he gets a chance to kind of preach one last right. bit. And so he has to submit his manuscript of what he's going to say. And so... When the time comes, he he changes it last mm-hmm. minute. And he talks about, you know, he renounces the recantation that he had, you know, written and signed with his own hand um, and declared that he would, you know, the hand would be burned first. Um, and then says, and as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. And as he's saying that, he's probably had more to say, but they pulled him from the pulpit Um and they're like, okay, we're just going to move this thing up, and we're going <laughs> to we're going to end this. Oh, look at the time! And and as the flames are are you know coming up all around him, he does what he says, and he sticks his hand out, and it burns first as just a symbol of kind of his his repentance, repentance, yeah, yeah for 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 what he'd done, and uh, he called it his unworthy hand. And his final words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then as he's dying, he says, I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Um, very Stephen moment. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it gets really rough, but Mary's rule would end only a couple of years later. She has a significant significant decline in her health. There's a, also a pattern, not only of the flip-flopping, but there's also just a pattern of really poor health amongst the royal family. Right. I don't know. I'm just saying. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> They're all kind of distant. Like all the royal families are kind of connected anyways. But mm-hmm. there's uh, she has she has poor health. I think she's maybe in her early 40s when she when she dies. And then Elizabeth would come and then <laughs> it would essentially be, hey, 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 you know, English peasant person who just had to flip flop back to Roman Catholicism. Right. You're Protestant we're, or you're dead. We're Protestants again. Aren't you glad? Right. I guess so. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and then the the local priests, right? Yeah. But he, oh. It's like, oh, you can st- you, you don't have to hide your wife anymore. You can bring her out of the basement. You're allowed to be married to her yeah. again. <laughs> right. Right. So, like those, we joke about it, but those were literal situations that would would happen. Mm-hmm. It's like priests were like allowed to marry under Edward. Mary comes. No, you're not. And if we find out you've got a wife, you're not getting paid. So they hide their wives away. And then Mary dies and they come out of the woodwork again. It's just like, how do you keep up? Anyways. Yeah. The the answer to that, I I think, is you you make your decisions mm-hmm. based on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And not on who sits 
in the throne. Yeah. But that's right. But and you're right. You're absolutely right. It's easy to say from this. It's so easy for us to say that in the modern era. It is so easy for us to say these ridiculous people like following. Like we don't have the threat of our of being burned at the stake. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I think this this conversation is also going to come up again when we continue talking about the latter half of John Knox's story because he's going to take up the sword. And again, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, why would he? How could he? Yeah. It's also dismissive. What what I said is is also dismissive. So I I, I say it as a, a true thing, mm. but still somewhat tongue-in-cheek, right? Sure. Because the other advantage that I have is literacy. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah, totally. A lot of these people... That's a good point. ...only only understand faith as it is explained to them by their local bishop or priest or mm-hmm. who, whatever it happens to be in that political moment. Right, right. And so what they understand to be true of God doesn't come from their own personal reading of the Scripture. Mm-hmm. And the years of schooling that I've had to develop those strong convictions, uh, the hours that I spend every week in the Word, mm-hmm. you know, honing that... Um, they're workers, yeah. and what they know of God is what's told to them. Yeah, and the guy now the guy's telling me this. Now the guy's telling me that. It's uh, man, it's a rough spot to put people in. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Um. So meanwhile, John Knox, um, has been in Europe. So he's in. He's kind of hitting all those all the big places, right? He's in Zurich. Where Zwingli was from, he spends time with Calvin in Geneva. Mm-hmm. Then he's pastoring uh, an English-speaking church in Frankfurt. Um, there's, it's a bumpy road with Knox sometimes because he's, it's it's technically an English church, but he doesn't like the Common Book of Common Prayer in certain regards, and so he ends up returning to Scotland, and and the bishops call him to trial, but. He's so popular in Scotland that so many of the noblemen are like, oh, the bishops are calling you to a trial. Okay, well, we'll just come with you. And so many powerful people accompany him to the court that the bishops just call it off. And they're like, you know what? Actually, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Just go do your thing, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't, we yep. don't want any trouble. Yeah. Um, and so he's there in Scotland and he pops back to Geneva. He kind of does this flip-flopping thing where he kind of travels between Scotland and, and Switzerland. His goal, his goal is to turn Scotland into just one big Geneva. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's that's totally it. So he's kind of like, I'm gonna go back there. While he's there, he writes he writes this very inflammatory book called "The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women." I think you just need to say that again slowly. The first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. So here's here's the thing. There are three That needs explanation. You don't move on from No, that. no, no. There are three queens all who happen to be named Mary mm-hmm. that John does not get on with cuz one is the Mary the Mary the 1st of England, Bloody Mary. The other is the Dowager Queen, so she was the the wife of the recently deceased King of Scotland, Mary of Guise. And then her daughter is the young queen, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, who mm-hmm. is kind of in the wings waiting to kind of take the throne. And essentially, all three of them are staunchly Catholic. And want him dead. And all three of them want him dead. And so he writes this book, which 
part of it is kind of this uh, call against just women being in uh, being rulers, like being queens, mm-hmm. um, which kind of bites him in the butt once Elizabeth comes right. to the throne because right. she's a Protestant and she's like, well, you just said that like queens right. are like you, you hate queens. And he's like, well, it even, even to the really point, about you. But he, ri- he writes to ask like, hey, can we sit down and chat? Because I've got some information that might be useful to you. And she's like, no, we're not going to sit down and chat. Yeah, she's like, no, no, no. And, and by the way, his his point in Monstrous is mm. to call it unnatural. Right. Right. Uh, not gonna defend him. No, no. Not gonna defend him at all. No. Uh, this is this is one of those points where we have to look at these people who did great things, mm. noble things that we are forever indebted to. Like when we talk about the peace that we have, even the political peace that we have around religion mm-hmm. in our time is due to these men. Yeah, yeah, and the theological understanding that has been developed over the years due to these men—they're mm-hmm. not perfect. No, no, no. No character in Scripture was perfect, right? God uses broken vessels mm-hmm. to bring about His glory, mm-hmm. and those broken vessels are going to show their weak points. Yeah, right. And so, so here's what cancel culture has done to us: <laughs> it has caused us to say, "Oh, these guys like John Knox." Well, John Knox wrote about women being monsters. <laughs> and so they must agree with that. Right, right. That's ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to wholesale buy. And if, if you're going to do that, mm-hmm. then I'm not a fan of anyone but Christ. Right, sure. Right? Even myself. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and that just, but the problem is, the problem is I think the church invented cancel culture. Mm. And that's why we have so many people put to the sword over the <laughs> differences of their theology through the Reformation. I think the church and the Reformation invented cancel culture, and now we complain about it because <laughs> it's come back on us. Yeah, maybe. Uh, you're right. But but this is this is what I would call one of his greatest flaws. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, in his context, there weren't many queens who were heads of state. Right. And then all of a sudden, in a short period of time, there's a few, and all of them happen to like murdering people who have the same view as him. So, again, it's a, it's a misguided uh, notion that he has, but it's based on his experience, mm-hmm. which is, if, again, every time one of these women come to power, yeah. my life is on the line. Yeah. So it's like sh- sh- if we had been in those same shoes, Back then, we, we might have come to similar conclusions. Right. It's not an unpopular opinion. No, no. Uh, other people hold it. And um, so it, it's it's not an uncommon position. It's based on his experience. And he throws it out there and he can't recant it. No. Right? Once like once published. You, once, you, once you throw it out there, it's out there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 So he goes back to Scotland and... Um, essentially immediately is met by a large group of Protestants and the Dowager Queen, so the old Mary of Guise, is essentially calling all the Protestants to get together in one place because she wants to talk to them. <laughs> sure you do. Sure, It's never a good idea. Sure you do. So they're like, well, we're going to stick together, but we're not going there. 
And this isn't just like a mob of common people. This is many prominent lords who are allying with Knox. They seize multiple towns and they seize the capital of Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're successful. So this dowager queen, she calls in help from France because Scotland and France were uh, good friends because they both hated the English. They had a common enemy. Um, The Protestant forces call in help from England, which is now under Elizabeth. And so... There's things are heating up, right? The, the the two factions within Scotland are calling in foreign allies. There is some bloodshed, not that much. Uh, eventually, peace is struck. The old queen, the dowager queen, died, and that kind of put an end to things, at least for that that time. And then the Parliament of Scotland actually comes to John Knox. They come to him and five other pastors, all named John. There's a there's this thing in the reform culture <laughs> about kids named John. Something about John. Yeah. It, there's just something about it. Mm-hmm. Reformed believers like the name. All mm-hmm. the way up into the modern age. Yeah. Oh, sure. MacArthur, Piper. Yeah. Yep. Right? It's just a thing. It's Owen, Edwards, and it just keeps <laughs> going back, right? It reminds me of a time when I was in Lima, and I was teaching uh, the book of Ephesians. Okay. For a Bible class. And we were taking the Calvinistic and the Arminian position. And we were, I was teaching them both equally as Mm. we were working through the passage. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple Pentecostals Mm. that were like, nobody believes this when I was talking about Calvinism. Right. Like never heard that in my life. Nobody believes it. Ridiculous. Right. And on the other side, there was another kid in the room who's like, uh are you kidding me? Like you truly believe this or many of never heard it before. What are you talking about? Right. 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 Like kids that grew up together, mm-hmm. both missionary kids, mm-hmm. just dumbfounded. And <laughs> one of the kids turns and looks at the other one. He's like, Calvin, you believe this? And as soon as he said it, he went, oh. Calvin. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> oh that's great i love it so john and the five other johns uh are called by the scottish parliament to write down a a new confession of faith for for scotland and what they come up with in a few short days is something called the scots confession and it's essentially the the foundation of presbyterian theology it becomes unpacked further in something called the westminster confession but that's like I don't know, 60 years down the road from, from where we are in the narrative here. And so Parliament accepts it and then immediately passes multiple bits of legislation in Scotland. Bans the Pope's authority. No celebration of the Catholic Mass. And essentially just ban all teaching that was not considered Protestant or Reformed. Mm-hmm. Like in a day. Like they just do it. Boom. You wake up one day, (laughs) and the world is a different place. Yeah, although that's not going to last forever because the young Mary, Queen of Scots, returns to Scotland and immediately goes into the chapel at the castle and takes Mass, Catholic Mass, like immediately, right? So, which upsets John Knox. Um, And so, (laughs) anyway, so he starts preaching against her she calls him and they have they have a series of chats and they have this really weird 
relationship because they're diametrically opposed theologically. And she's convinced that John Knox hates her. And he's like, I don't necessarily hate you. I just hate what you're doing and what you represent, Mm -hmm. I think. And so he coined hate the sin, love the sinner. (laughs) Not really. No, probably not. But that was essentially it, right? And so they have a discussion about this book that he wrote in which she was one of the primary (laughs) characters of focus. You would think by now he would have a little more wisdom toward that. Yeah, well, so he essentially says, look, if if Paul could live under Nero, then I I suppose I could live under you, which is fun. (laughs) Which is fun. Um... But then, so, but then she, she kind of presses and she's like, so like, shouldn't you just tell your people to submit to the rulers in all, all circumstances? And this is where John's like, you know what? No, there is a justification to resist a ruler if they are exceeding their lawful limits, even if it's by force. And that's, that's his position. That's a very, um, reformed and Presbyterian Mm -hmm. position, even to this day to say submission to the authorities insofar as the authorities do not exceed their their lawful limits. And so that's that's kind of his his take and and you know in a lot of his um writing and in his discussion there's this handling the relationship between church and state is always a really tricky th- it continues to be a tricky thing. Mm-hmm. Right? We continue to wrestle with that. And you know and so there are times where people you know, or come to Knox and they say, well, Luther and Calvin both argued for submission to government authorities. And, and, you know, and, but he's like, well, yeah, but they were writing about Anabaptists who completely rejected all government authority and said, there's no such thing as government. No one can tell us what to do. Context matters. Yes. Right. That's the thing. The context matters. And so even our, our political context and our relationship between church and state today is so vastly different from the circumstances 50 years ago 500 years right. ago right and so it's just it's always such a messy thing but he he yeah. is neck deep in that it's one of those issues where nuance is necessary i think so but yeah. when you're living in extremes mm-hmm. to bring people back to that nuanced understanding you speak to the extremity yeah you don't get to then take that out of its historical context and say this is the extreme position mm-hmm Right? Yeah. No, that was the position bringing things back to center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, there's this ongoing conflict for his latter years. He gets sick. He eventually dies in 1572. His epitaph, I love his epitaph. Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that is... That's his wife said something to the... Yeah, she spoke at his funeral mm-hmm. and said something to the uh, tune of, he was a man who feared no flesh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, going through some of the things that he went through, I guess you'd get to a point where, what am I afraid of, right? He's been a, He's been enslaved. He's been on the run. He's had multiple people trying to kill him. Very Pauline in that way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Very, Very much the kind of guy that you just can't win. As yeah. his enemy, mm-hmm. uh, because he's not afraid of you. You're not going to intimidate him, mm-hmm. and if you kill him, you're just doing him a favor. Yeah, yeah, right. Which eventually they'll do him a favor. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
there's a legacy of Presbyterianism that he's kind of established. He's essentially considered the founder yeah. of Presbyterianism, yeah. um, which holds to Reformed Calvinistic doctrine, but is is different um, different than like the Anglican Church system or mm-hmm. or our congregational system in that it has a Presbyterian ecclesiology. So to help people understand that who may not be familiar with with how it works. So whereas here at our church, for example, at the Baptist church, we have elders who are essentially elected from within the congregation to represent the church. They would have that mm-hmm. same thing. But then from there, they'd have each individual congregation would elect a representative at the presbytery, then the synod, then the general assembly. So it kind of works its way up that way. So you have, it's it's not congregational autonomy like we have, uh, but it's it's less top down than right. Roman Catholic or um, or Anglican modes of government. Yeah, it hits an interesting middle road. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, yeah, I would say so. It's it is democratic to a degree. I mean, it's similar to like how we you know each riding. Elects mm-hmm. a represent an MP who goes to Parliament and that is operating there, right? Whereas our conviction on ecclesiology is that each individual church should not be governed by people outside of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the break between you know Presbyterian and Baptist ecclesiology, but it's definitely I would say it's definitely a, a favorable move in the right direction from the top down Archbishop, Bishop, so on and so forth. Um, so there's that legacy as well. Um, yeah, so, yeah, and this is, we, we've said it a few weeks back and and I kind of want to keep making points to it as we go along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the first thing I I say that is I hope in concrete ways you're getting to a point where you drive by and you see the Christian Reformed Church Mm -hmm. or the Canadian Reformed Church and you think that is a direct legacy of John Calvin. Yeah. And what he was doing. And I hope that when you drive by Knox Presbyterian, Mm -hmm. so long as we're able to drive by Knox Presbyterian here in town. Yeah, true. uh, That you see that and you think about the man, John Knox, Mm -hmm. and where they came from. Yeah. Right? These these times, the 1500s, feel very distant, but in some ways, when when I was, again, another story from Lima. When I was in Lima— we went to uh, the Union Church of Lima. It was an English-speaking church, and my pastor there was a man named Angus Lamont. Nice. Okay. Who studied at the University of Edinburgh. Nice. And was Presbyterian and Reformed to the teeth, mm. as he should, and a fantastic guitar player. Really? Next-level guitar player. Cool. Spent his high school years as a rock and roller. Um, but you just see these things, right? Mm. In played out today. Now, to that end, for our Canadian audience in particular, in particular, when you drive past the Presbyterian Church, it is not necessarily a direct line from John Knox. Mm. There has been an in flux of liberal theology in the Presbyterian Church. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is a split 
mm-hmm. in the Presbyterian Church between those who would hold to Reformed Orthodox Presbyterianism mm-hmm. and those who are falling away into various liberalisms and chasing culture. Yeah. Most fascinating is the doctrine of egalitarianism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially considering what <laughs> Just John let Knox... Just that, let that sink in. <laughs> let that sink in a bit. For those of you, if you don't know what egalitarianism, that is that is just the $5 term for a church that ordains women as pastors mm-hmm. and as elders. And that the Presbyterian Church in Canada does that, lots of churches do. Sure. Right? But that the Presbyterian Church would do it. <laughs> no. Is a little bit ironic. It's yeah. humorous. It, it is. It is. It's humorous. And and that you would have a woman pastoring Knox Presbyterian Church. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you d- if you don't have a little bit of yeah. humor for that, then yeah. what are you doing? Knox would not approve. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> in fact, he wrote a book on it. He did. He did. Yeah. Anyway. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition Canada. And it is produced by Alex Walker. See you next time. Bye.